Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Welcome to episode 61 of the Observer's Notebook podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the podcast and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. I want to thank you for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as The Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the Observer's Notebook, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can give as little as a dollar a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook, And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits and a one-year membership to the ALPO. You can help us out by going to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com, slash Observer's Notebook. If you would like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $18 a year. That's $18 for membership of the ALPO. For more information, visit us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find us on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And also the this here podcast has a Facebook page as well. Uh, just search for Observer's Notebook. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you never miss another episode of the Observer's Notebook. And now, enjoy the podcast. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast, and it's that time of year again to talk about comets. Uh, so that means we have Carl Hergenrother on the podcast. Welcome back, Carl. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, before we get started, you your, your, your 9 to 5 job is working on the OSIRIS-REx mission, correct? Correct. Why don't you just give us you know, a two-minute update of where we are right now? Okay, so the, the spacecraft, you know, we were approaching Bainu for most of the le- latter half of last year. We got our first good high-resolution images in the November-December time frame. And actually, right on New Year's Eve, we entered orbit. So we're right now in an orbit that takes us about one and a half to two kilometers from the center of the asteroid. And we're in prep- we're, right now we're preparing some of our first-look uh, science data. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to release more in the coming months. Great. Sounds wonderful. Exciting times. Now, we're going to talk about comets for 2019, but before we do that, how about just a brief rundown of the comets that are currently visible in the evening sky, and we are recording this early January 2019. Yeah, well, that's a good thing is that, you know, kicking off right now, um, the three brightest comets in the sky are comets from 2018. And 2018 was a great year for comets. I mean, we didn't have any great comets, but we did get one comet, uh, Wirtanen, which is a short-period comet, 46P, that actually got naked-eye brightness. At least I could see it naked-eye, barely, from my backyard. 
Um, it made a historic close approach to the Earth, uh, approximately 0.08 AU from the Earth in mid-December. And we've actually had quite a nice run of very close approaches over the last 10 years. Not all those comets have gotten bright. Some of them were you know, 13th, 14th magnitude, because they were very inactive comets. But quite a few, like Tuttle, Jacobini, Krasik, and Honda, Murkosh, Pajasakova, you know, got up to 6th, 7th magnitude, and were, were good uh, small binocular, small telescope objects. But Wirtanen, when we were predicting Wirtanen might get up to around magnitude 3, around the time of close approach, it looks like people were mainly placing it around magnitude 4, um, whether that's because the comet really was slightly more inactive this time or not as active this time, or because, you know, when you, when you have a very gaseous coma and you get this close to the earth, it's spread over, you know, many lunar diameters on the sky. You're talking a degree or two of space. And so it's very possible that you're just losing a lot of that coma, especially, you know, since most of us don't live on Mauna Kea, so we don't have the, you know, the dark skies in the world a lot of light pollution to deal with the objects just don't quite appear as bright and we had something similar a couple years back when comet hartley 2 which is very similar working in very similar size very similar perihelion distance uh similar close distance to the earth and also one of these hyperactive comets that appears to produce more dust and gas than you would expect for its nucleus size and it also seemed to underperform by about a magnitude so i'm wondering if part of it is just when these objects get this close and this big you're just, when you're looking, you know, with your eye or with a telescope, you're just kind of losing the outer edges of the coma. And so you're kind of underestimating how bright it, it got. Yeah, I know doing magnitude estimates of something this large is very difficult. I mean, it's, it's, you can't, you can't really, you know, pin down the number. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, once an object gets this large, and people were reporting di coma diameters as large as two degrees. Yeah. I mean, you have very few people have, you know, telescopes that you can see of a two degree field of view. And even binoculars, my 10 by 50s, I couldn't defocus a star that large. Right. right. And so instead, what I was doing was I was using uh, just my eye, and I would take my glasses off. <laughs> and that would, and that kind of got the ballpark <laughs> and the right amount of defocus. <laughs> I never thought of doing it that way. Okay, it's an interesting concept. I like it. Now, what does it look like right now? So right now, the comet's still around fifth magnitude. Okay. Um, it's up high. It's in Lynx, uh, entering Ursa Major. So it's a it's a far northern object. If you remember, before close approach, up until the end of November, it was a far southern object, and then it raced north through the ecliptic, and now it's up north, up high. Um, right now, it's about fifth magnitude. Of course, it's past its closest approach. It's rapidly moving away from the Earth, and it may even be as faint as eighth or ninth magnitude by the end of this month. So for most backyard observers with, you know, your average 8-inch telescope or, you know, 50-millimeter, 80-millimeter binoculars, January, maybe into February, is probably going to be it for Wharton for this time around. It does come back in 2024 because it's on a 5.4-year period. But as usually is the case with short period comets, a good return, one apparition is horrible the next, and next time it will be on the other side of the sun. Okay. And we also have a few other comets that are in the, are visible or soon to be visible in the, in the sky. Right. So we have two that are on the way out and one that's on the way in that are all visible now in the early part of uh, 2019. So for the two on the way out, there I'll, I'll start off with a 38P Stefan Otterma, which is a Halley family comet because it has a 
rotation period on the order of it's 38 years. So this object was last seen in 1980. We won't see it again until 2056. It was predicted to get up to about magnitude nine and a half, magnitude 10, and it did that. Um, CCD observers right now are actually seeing quite an interesting uh, tail structure to it. It actually is, turns out to be kind of a dusty comet with a long dust tail. But right now it's around magnitude 10. It's another object that's far up in the north around the Lynx area. So it's actually not too far from Wurtonen. And it'll slowly fade over the next couple months. And by the end of February, you're talking about a 12th, 13th magnitude comet. And then it'll, you know, slowly fade off into the night until it comes back 38 years from now. And then the other comet that is around is 64P Swift Garrels. This is an interesting comet because it's intrinsically not very bright. Um, it was discovered visually back in 1889 and then was lost for almost 100 years until it was rediscovered in 1972 photographically. This is by far its best apparition. Um, perihelion is at about 1.4 AU, and then it got to within about 0.44 AU of the Earth around the same time as perihelion. So it was basically as close to the Earth as it could possibly get. And we were predicting it to get uh, maybe magnitude 9, magnitude 9.5. But we kind of had an early uh, idea that this comet was going to be a little more dynamic than we were expecting, because back in mid-August, it experienced a 2-3 magnitude outburst when it was on the way in. And even just a few days ago, starting right now, it's January 5th when we're recording this, but January 2nd, people noticed the beginning of another outburst. You can kind of see this jet structure coming off the nucleus in CCD images. And the comet, even though it's well past perihelion, which occurred back in November, is continuing to intrinsically bright, and even apparent-wise, it's up to magnitude 8.5, magnitude 9. So Swift Garrels has actually put on a surprising show for us. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't checked that one out yet. And that one right now is sitting kind of in the Aries, Taurus, Perseus okay. part of the sky. So it's a, a nice evening object, well-placed. Great. Now we have uh, uh, Comet Machholz, uh, Fujikawa Aomoto. What's the mm -hmm. story on that one right now? So it's interesting because, you know, nowadays you uh, you rarely get comets that are discovered. You get the comets that are discovered by amateurs, but they're rarely discovered visually. And Don Machholz, who, you know, former Alpo Comet Section Recorder Coordinator, actually discovered this comet visually with his 16-inch telescope. So it was the first visual comet discovery in about 10 years or so, um, going back to uh, Ikea Muramaki back in, I think it was 2008. It's also really rare nowadays to have comets that actually have three names attached to them. Not only that, all three discoverers, Makholtz, Fujikawa, Iwamoto, were all amateurs, are all amateurs. Like I said, Makholtz discovered it uh, visually, but Fujikawa, who's been discovering comets since the late 60s, and Iwamoto, who's discovered in Later on in this uh, podcast, you'll hear of another discovery of his. This was the second of his three discoveries, though Fujikawa and Iwamoto both discovered the comet kind of using uh, telephoto lenses and CCDs. And so this comet was discovered a couple months ago in the morning sky, and it got up to about eighth magnitude. And after going through perihelion at a relatively low perihelion distance, around 0.3, 0 0.4 AU, it popped up again in the evening sky in December, and people were following it around 8th or ninth magnitude. Unfortunately, now the comet is back too close to the sun, and by the time it comes back out, 
February, March timeframe, it'll probably be way too faint for any kind of backyard observing other than CCDs. Yeah. But, um, episode 58 of the podcast, I did interview Don right after his comet discovery too. Mm-hmm. And he talked about, you know, the, the, the two other discoverers with it. And he had concerns at that point that it would come too close to the sun and not come out the other side. So, I Right. Right. But it survived. It's there. Okay, great. 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 Now the, the other, uh, uh, Iowa Moda comet. Right, right. So he discovered, you know, that previous comet we are talking about, Makoto Fujikawa Iowa Moda, and then he discovered another comet on December 18th. Um, same relative part of the sky. It was a morning object. Again, using a, I think it was a 100 millimeter tele, as a t- telephoto lens and a Canon EOS uh, 60 camera. And when he discovered a comet, it was around 10th or 11th magnitude. And this one looks like it could be a good one for visual observers as well. And in fact, right now, unless you know there's another great or good comet discovered over the coming year, this actually could turn out to be our brightest comet of the year. So it's a long period comet. Unfortunately, we don't know if it's a dynamically new or old comet, which means we don't know if it's actually passed through the inner solar system before. And the reason why that's important is if it's first time in, usually those comets are really bright far out. And then they kind of underperform as they come closer in. And it's kind of the opposite for dynamically old comets. They're kind of faint way out there, and then they brighten rapidly and become brighter than you expect when they were closer in. But this comet is already pretty close to its perihelion. Um, when it was discovered, it was already around 1.4 AU out. And perihelion's at 1.28 AU on February 6th. So right now it's looking like, I mean, re- observers are reporting this comet depending on whose observations you you uh, follow, but it's somewhere between 9th and 11th magnitude, which again may actually be telling you that it's one of these comets that has a very large diffuse gaseous coma. So a lot of it depends not only on your what instrumentation you're using, but your observing conditions, as well as maybe even the sensitivity of your eyes to, you know, the swan bands, the blueness, that blue-green you see in the coma. Right. But right now, for a comet that's probably around magnitude 10, maybe a little brighter, it looks like it should get up to magnitude 7 around the early part of February. And even though it's kind of a southern-ish object in the morning sky, it rapidly shoots through opposition when it's at its best and heads north. So it should be good from both hemispheres, though it becomes a little better of a northern hemisphere object after perihelion than southern hemisphere. But it's even becomes an evening object by about mid February. Okay. Now these last two comets were both visually discovered, which is well, this one wasn't. This, oh, this one, one. Okay. Yeah, Iwamoto was using a CCD and a telephoto lens for oh, both of those comets. Okay, but it wasn't done by one of these huge sky surveys and things like that either. Like was, like ninety five percent of the comets we are now seeing. Right. Nowadays, most comets are discovered by pan stars, and they all carry the pan star's name. They're discovered by the Catalina Sky Survey, though quite often they those will will carry the name of either Catalina, Lemon for the Mount Lemon Telescope they run, or are named after the individual observers themselves if they had actually, uh, when they discovered the object, noticed it was cometary. And then there's a group in Hawaii called Atlas, which is actually scanning the entire sky multiple times a night, looking for inbound asteroids that might be you know only a few days to weeks out before they hit us. And they do a pretty good job of catching anything that's brighter than about 20th magnitude than anyone else might have missed. 
But in the case of uh, Mockholds, Fujikawa, Iwamoto, and this one as well as Iwamoto, they were kind of coming out of the sun. Yeah. Iwamoto, in a way, is a little bit similar to Iras Araki Alcock, if you remember 1983. Of course, not coming anywhere near as close to the Earth as Iras Araki Alcock did. But it's a ob- long period comet on a very retrograde orbit. So it's really, we're both going in opposite directions. So it's kind of a drive by. Okay. Um, yeah, Don mentioned to me something interesting that he's actually changed up his his uh, comet hunting techniques now that PanStars and Catalina Sky Survey are out there. You know, he's looking at objects that are look, scanning closer to the horizon, closer to the sun. Yes. Now, instead of full sky scanning like he did before, he goes, that area is being covered. You know, yep. You've got to look for objects that are either been hiding too close to the sun, um, objects that might have just gone into outburst. And some surveys are really good at observing through the Milky Way, like Panstar. Some, like Catalina, stay away from the Milky Way. So sometimes you'll actually see objects in the Milky Way be discovered by automated NOVA searches rather than, you know, the comet asteroid search programs that you're used to. And that's why we eventually, every once in a while, get comets like ASOS or Assassin or Master. And those are more supernova, NOVA-type search programs. Interesting. Well, so 2018 was a pretty good year for comet observing. How does 2019 look? So 2019, I mean, we've got the three comets, the three uh, short period comets, 46P Wharton in, which is still good in January, 64P Swift Garrel, still good in January, and 38P Stefan Otima, January is probably going to be your last time to see that comet for a long time. Uh, the C2018Y1 Iwamoto, which is what we were just mentioning, will be good. In, you know, It's brightening right now and will be an excellent comet, seventh magnitude. You no know, fingers crossed, maybe brighter in February. So that's going to be a good one as well. But then looking forward, there's only really two other comets that will probably get bright. Um, one was also just recently discovered um, just in the past month or so. And this is a long period comet, C2018W2 Africano. A little interesting story here is that this comet was discovered by Brian Africano at the Mount, with the Mount Lemmon 1.5 meter telescope, as well as the observer at, who was at the Catalina Schmidt. Remember, the Mount Lemmon telescope and the Catalina telescope are both run by the same program. So they discovered the same comet within minutes of each other. The reason why Brian's name, Africano, is on it and not Roller, the other observer, was because Africano got his observation in first, to the Minor Planet Center. They didn't actually know that the other one had discovered the comet yet until after they had submitted their stuff to the Minor Planet Center. So a little bit of a inter-survey competition there. Yeah, my goodness. Yeah. So like I said, this comet was only discovered in the last month or two. Um, it has perihelion in September of this year, 2019 when perihelion is about 1.45 AU. Um, luckily, at about that same time, it's going to be as the way the orbits line up, it will come pretty close to the Earth at 0.49 AU. So basically, it's having as good of an approach to the Earth as it possibly can on its orbit. It also appears to be a dynamically old comet, which means it's been around before. And that gives us a little bit of confidence that this object will brighten at a pretty good clip and so the hope is that it will get up to about magnitude nine and a half to ten and a half next September and October. Um, it will be a northern hemisphere object inbound, and then as it goes through perihelion, 
it actually shoots south. And so following perihelion, it's more of a southern hemisphere object. So not a you know super bright object in magnitude 9 or 10, but considering that's the only good backyard visual object from February to September, I guess we'll take it. Yeah, and it could be dynamic, too, with uh, being an older comet. It definitely could. It definitely could. And then the other object that looks like it will get bright enough for visual observing is C2017 T2 Panstars. Now, this object actually doesn't come to perihelion until May of 2020, and at a fairly distant 1.6 AU. But it's actually intrinsically a pretty bright comet. It is dynamically new, so you know you run the risk of, well, maybe it's, it seems really bright because it, when it was discovered out at 9.5 AU, which is almost the distance of Saturn, that it was just abnormally bright because, again, first time this close to the sun, possibly ever, and so you had a lot of really volatile ices that were sublimating, and it caused a big, giant coma. And the object, actually, as it gets closer, will not be as active as it was back then. But right now, it is looking like this comet could peak as bright as around 8th magnitude and be around 8th magnitude for almost all of 2020, which is quite a long span of time. For this year, though, it looks, you know, if it follows its current prediction, it could break that magnitude 10 threshold at the tail end of December. So this is kind of an end of the year, all of 2020 object. Okay. That sounds interesting. All year, eighth magnitude. Wow. Yeah. So that's it for the, the bright objects. Okay. But there are two other objects that look interesting for, I mean, there's always comets out there. Right. You know, every year there's probably about 50 comets that come through perihelion. In fact, I think two of my discoveries come through perihelion in uh, 2019. Oh, really? Yeah, 168P, which had a bunch of splitting events last time in 2012 and got up to ninth magnitude, which was a nice surprise. But there are two objects I want to talk about that, while they may not get bright enough for visual observing, they might. And even if they don't get that bright, they'll be good for CCD observing. So like I mentioned before, we've had this great run of really close approaches, you know, Wharton and just being the most recent example, but we had, you know, 209P linear and 252P linear and 41P and 45P and 103P and just see like every year there was some, some short period comet coming within a tenth of an AU of the Earth. And this year, actually, there's nothing in 2019, but in January 2020, Comet 289P Blanpain, and I could be completely butchering that pronunciation, because <laughs> I do think it is French. Okay. Um, so it's probably something different. <clears throat> On January 11th of next year, it comes within 0 0.09 AU. Oh, my of goodness. But it's observable this year on the way in. Now, this object has got a very interesting backstory. Uh, for starters, it was discovered visually in 1819. When it was obviously, it must have been pretty bright to have been discovered back then, probably fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth magnitude. And then it went undiscovered, I mean, unobserved for almost 200 years. The Catalina Sky Survey uh, stumbled across it in 2003. And at the time, it was inactive. It was just, it was designated 2003 WY25 which is a uh, you know asteroid designation. But Peter, Je Peter Jeniskins very quickly realized that, hey, this object looks like it's in the same orbit as 289P Blanpane and could also be the parent body of the Phoenician meteor shower, which is not a very well-known meteor shower, but it did have an outburst in 1956, where it had about 100 meteors per hour. 
And a few months after discovery, David Jewett was able to use a large telescope and did detect a weak coma. So the object was, uh, by then, it was like, okay, this is definitely bland pain, designated a <clears throat> comet 289P. Last time around in 2013 or 2014, again, it wasn't very bright, but a couple months before perihelion, when it was still at a rather distant 4AU, it had a large, almost 10 magnitude outburst. I mean, the object should have been in an active 26th magnitude, and it got up to 17. Wow. <clears throat> so in 2013, it had a major outburst. It's likely 1819 it had a major outburst, and that year it was discovered. So this object is prone to outbursts. And while it may only get up to about magnitude 17 to 18 inactive in January of 2020, I mean, if it were to have an outburst at that time or become more active, this could actually be a quite an interesting object to follow. And also for CCD observers, this is probably the smallest comet nucleus you will ever be able to detect without a coma getting in the way. Really? I mean, the object is only about 300 meters in diameter, we think. That's oh small. Right. Wow, and when's the perihelion on that comet? So perihelion is in January. Uh, sorry, it's December 20th of this year at 0 0.96 AU. But its closest approach to the Earth will be a few weeks later in January. All right. And so at the end of this year, it's probably only going to be up to 19th magnitude. So you're definitely talking, I mean, that's a, that's a stretch for a lot of people in their backyards, even with CCDs. Right. But it'll get up to 17 later. So as it turns out, Blampane may not be the only inactive or expected to be inactive comet that is going to pass relatively close to the Earth and may turn out to be much more brighter in actuality and more dynamically active. Uh, lately, there's been a lot of objects discovered by mostly the professional surveys that at first appear to be asteroidal and they later turn out to be cometary. And one in particular, and it's still designated as an asteroid, is A-2018 V3, was discovered by PanStars, and it's amazing we've gotten this far into a, you know, comets of the year thing. Well, I guess T2 before was PanStars, but we got a few comets in before we had a PanStars comet. <laughs> but now here's our second one. So this one was discovered by PanStars back in November at a really faint magnitude 21. And at its current heliocentric distance of 3.5 AU, it hasn't shown any comet activity. But when it gets to perihelion in September of this year, it'll be at 1.34 AU. At pretty much the same time, it'll also have a close approach to the Earth of around 0 0.38 AU. If what we're actually seeing right now is the bare nucleus and it stays inactive, it still will get up to 14 magnitude. And that's an easy object for CCD observers. But it's a Halley-type comet. Well, it's not quite a Halley-type comet, but it's a dynamically old long-period comet. And it's actually not too – the long period isn't that much greater than the Halley family. It's about 1,500-year period. So it's very possible that this object will become active and could become substantially active. And if the nucleus really is sitting there at 14th magnitude, then it's there's a possibility this could be a could break into the visual range when it's near perihelion in that September time frame. Okay. Wow. So there's a lot of good possibles out there. There's a lot of good possibles out there. I like yeah. it. That's good. So we got any more coming, or is that, that pretty much wrap it up? Well, I mean, we've got lots of fainter ones, but for, you know, objects that will either break 10th magnitude or could potentially break 10th magnitude. I mean, obviously, the surveys are still out there. Mm -hmm. There's amateurs still out there. Comets are being discovered all the time. 
comets are breaking up and going into outbursts all the time. Right. I'm sure there will be other objects um, that we can observe other than these, and it's very likely, well, I wouldn't say likely, but it's possible, hopefully, fingers crossed again, <laughs> that, you know, the brightest comet of the year is one we don't even know about right now. That's right, and if one is discovered, we will definitely chat again to talk mm-hmm. about that one. Wonderful. Yep. Well, Carl, I want to thank you for coming on. How can everybody get a hold of you? So you can go to the Alpo webpage, which is alpo-astronomy.org. Um, if you click on the comet section, you'll find how to contact me. Um, you can also send me an email, which will be attached at the you know on this podcast page. But it's carl.hergenrother at alpo-astronomy.org. And of course, at the Alpo, and I also have a uh, a page. Every month, I put up a page on the Cloudy Nights forum. Where I talk about all the comets that are visible for that month, and as well as having little updates and stuff like that. And I've kind of used that more as my, you know, way to reach out to the community at large to keep up to date with comet activity as well as the, you know, Alpo comet section activity. And of course, we're always interested in observations. It doesn't matter what kind. I know a lot of people feel like if they don't have, <clears throat> you know, the best CCD images, color images, that we don't want it. We want everything. We want your visual, you know, your sketches, your photos of, you know, current comets in past. Even just drop a line just saying, hey, I looked at Vertinen and it was fuzzy. Great. And it looked about as bright as this star. That's fine. That, that's, yeah. We just want to hear from you. Fantastic. I love it. Well, mm-hmm. Carl, I want to thank you once again for coming on the podcast. And I got to tell you, um, the most popular podcast we've ever done so far is Bright Comets of 2018. So awesome. I don't know if it's because I had the word bright in there. Maybe I'll put bright <laughs> in on this one too and just see if it has the same effect. Yeah, every once in a while I do these and I get responses back and I won't say who. It was like, oh, yeah, I thought when you said bright, bright meant bright. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a relative term. That's what we use well, it as yeah. here. <laughs> it's wonderful. All right, Carl. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank our special guest, Carl, Carl Hergenrother, for coming on and giving us an update on not only uh, the upcoming, upcoming comets for the next year, but also his OSIRIS-REx mission that he works on. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. And you can also listen to us on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and the Amazon Echo. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving up to $35 a month, where you will receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. With that, I want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seedentop, for his continued generous support of the Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much, Steve. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is available in the show notes. If you want to contact me, you can email me at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at @observersnbpod. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.
you are really good at this. Well, you know how much practice I've had over the past couple months with Osiris Rex? Oh, oh I'm sure. Oh. I'm sure. I mean, when we had our arrival, which was, what, this early December? And originally our arrival would have been, you know, New Year's Eve when we went into orbit. But New Horizons was doing its thing on New mm-hmm. Year's Eve. So we didn't want to compete with them. And so our arrival was just happened to be, yeah, we got within 20 kilometers of it. Every interview was like, how did it feel watching your your spacecraft land live? And it's like, oh, uh. <laughs> now I got it. First of all, I wasn't watching anything live because I had work to do. And second, it was like, now how do I explain to them that we're just going to fly around this thing for the next 18 months? Right. The way I described it to one person was where basically we pulled into the mall parking lot and we're going to spec- spend the next 18 months looking for a parking spot. <laughs> It's, it's Christmas time. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That's good. Well, I just, I really appreciate how prepared you are for these. So, I mean, it's really, it makes it easy. Well, actually, that's part of the reason why I was dragging my feet the last couple of days, was oh. I was trying to find time to put together my little cheat sheet that I can yeah. read off of. Well, I, I appreciate the time you took. I really do. It, it shows in the podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, man. Well, you take care. You too. And we'll chat next time we got a comment to talk about. Sounds good. Right, and maybe we can do an Osiris Rex update once the papers come out in March. You let me know and you got the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Sounds good. All right, Carl. Okay. Bye.